This is Africa Digest. Good evening and welcome to Africa Digest. You're listening to Channel Africa, giving you news from an African perspective. We're broadcasting to you from our studios in Johannesburg, South Africa, and we're online on www.channelafrica.co.za. My name is Samora Mangesi, in studio with Jwalani Tulo, Tracy Boomgaard, as well as Neto Chimani. Some top stories on Africa Digest at this hour. The U.S. threatens to impose economic and travel sanctions on South Sudan if authorities fail to form a new government of national unity by next month. All eyes on Mozambique as the country prepares to hold presidential, legislative and provincial elections tomorrow. In economics, the World Bank says growth in Africa remained subdued. And lastly in sport, Kenya's government plans to honor the country's athletes for elevating the country's image in the last one month. But right now, let's cross on over to the news desk for your latest news bulletin. Here is Zwalani Tulon. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Thank you, Samora. Good afternoon. The Electoral Commission of Mozambique has urged all the electorates to go and cast their votes on Tuesday. The Commission's chairperson, Sheikh Abdul Karimo Sao, has assured Mozambicans that the elections will be free, uh, safe and fair. He says all logistics have been put in place to ensure that there are no hiccups in the polls. Over 12 million Mozambicans have registered to vote in this year's elections. Amnesty International says journalists in Nigeria are operating under a climate of fear after 19 reporters were detained by security forces this year. The rights group says there has been a disturbing rise in threats and attacks on journalists, on journalists rather, for expressing critical views of the authorities on both conventional and social media in the country. In a statement, Amnesty accused the police, the military and the Department of State Security of being responsible for the clampdown on press freedom in Nigeria. Ethiopia's 19th century national palace, from where emperors and a communist leader ruled, has been opened to the public. The brainchild of Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed has been turned into a major tourist attraction. The BBC's Mary Harper has the story. The palace's 40-acre compound on a hill overlooking the capital Addis Ababa now includes a park, a museum and a zoo which will house black-maned lions. There's also a banqueting hall with a seating capacity of 8,000. Opening up the palace is very much in keeping with the style of Ethiopia's Prime Minister, Abiy Ahmed, who's introduced sweeping reforms and has just won the Nobel Peace Prize. But critics say it makes no mention of the brutality of the palace's founder, Emperor Menelik, and is a waste of resources for such a poverty stricken country. The U.S.-sponsored training on anti-corruption and prosecutions has begun at the headquarters of South Africa's National Prosecuting Authority in the capital, Pretoria. Officials from the Prosecuting Authority, Police and Asset Forfeiture Unit are being coached by their counterparts from the American Justice Department. The focus on the three-day workshop includes combating and prevention of corruption, money laundering and other cross-border crimes, Norma Bolani reports. The training schedule details how the U.S. Justice Department will train officials on how to be proactive with investigations, how to use digital evidence, 
and proving authenticity of information. An interesting session, which will take place tomorrow, is about how to develop mechanisms to induce co-conspirators to cooperate with law enforcement. On the third and final day, a training session on how officials should interact with the media will take place. On Thursday, the NPA says it will hold a briefing to explain how the workshop went, what they've learned, and how it will be applied going forward. And finally, some mobile telephone services have been restored in Indian-administered Kashmir two months after the government in Delhi stripped the region of its, constitu- of its special constitutional status. However, there is still little access to the internet in all 10 districts of the Kashmir Valley, the BBC's Kinjal Pandya reports. An estimated 4 million mobile connections have again become operational today, though prepaid services have yet to be restored. There was excitement on the streets of the capital Srinagar, though some were complaining that their mobiles are still not working. There were also queues outside the telecom's office as people tried to pay their bills to get their service reactivated. The decision comes a few days after a travel advisory for tourists visiting Kashmir was lifted. Headlines at 5.30 for Channel Africa. I'm Jolani Tulo. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. The United States has threatened to impose economic and travel sanctions on South Sudan if the authorities there fail to form a new government of national unity on the 12th of next month. Reacting to the threat, the authorities in Juba accused the United States of pushing for political leadership change in Africa's newest nation. James Shimanyula reports. A diplomatic row has erupted between the United States and South Sudan. The row revolves around the formation of a new government of national unity comprising parties that signed a peace agreement in neighboring Sudan last year. The row was triggered by remarks made recently by South Sudan President Salva Kiir. Without missing words, Kiir said he will form the new government with or without his main political and military opponent, Riek Machar, who now lives in Sudan. Kiir's remarks have not been taken lightly by the United States government. In fact, the United States has been disappointed and angered by the remarks to the extent that it's now threatening to impose economic and travel sanctions against South Sudan. Through Thomas Hushek, its diplomatic representative in South Sudan's capital, Juba, the United States says formation of the new government on the 12th of next month without the inclusion of Riek Machar and other political and military leaders that signed the peace agreement will compel it to impose sanctions on Africa's newest nation. Speaking to journalists at the United States Institute of Peace, Brian Hunt, Sudan and South Sudan Office Director at the State Department said, and I quote, Our view is that if the government is not formed by November 12, we are going to need to re-evaluate the relationship between the United States and South Sudan End of quote. Hunt said the U.S. sanctions would target South Sudan's economy like its oil because, as he put it, the government in Yuba would risk worsening the plight of people 
living in a country that partly depends on foreign aid for survival. Adding weight to remarks made in Washington by Brian Hunt, Sudan and South Sudan Office Director at the U.S. State Department, United States Diplomatic Representative in South Sudan, Thomas Hushek, said. What we all have in mind on November 12th, we don't say with or without. November 12th is implementing the peace agreement, which is a unity government that includes all the parties. So if you have one of the parties that's not moving forward, then you don't have a unity government. Pointing out a major factor which shows that the Juba government is slow in implementing all clauses of the agreement ahead of the formation of the new government, Hashek had this to say. The government hasn't slow to register forces for the cantonment, um, in particular on the government side, there haven't been any registrations. So that all needs to move forward in a much more accelerated fashion. They need to be talking about settling outstanding political issues, the number and boundaries of states. Reacting to threats by the United States to impose economic and travel sanctions on South Sudan if it fails to form an inclusive government of national unity, Information Minister Michael McQuay disclosed the main intention of the U.S. administration. It doesn't want peace for South Sudan. It doesn't want South Sudan to jump to the peace process. And that's why they are here to ensure that they create all sorts of problems. It's not the first time, Mr. McCray, that uh, the U.S. is uh, talking about sanctions on South Sudan. They are doing it because they don't want peace for South Sudan. It's very simple. That was South Sudan Information Minister Michael McQuay. Be that as it may, what puzzles observers is what the United States stands to gain from using sanctions against the South Sudan. President Salva Kiir, the spokesman at Ateng, thinks that the United States has a sinister motive against South Sudan. It can only be used as a recipe for regime change, for those who are running behind to change the regime, because it looks like it is designed to confuse the people of South Sudan. The voice of South Sudan presidential spokesman Ateng Wek Ateng. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. All eyes are on Mozambique as the country prepares to hold its presidential, legislative and provincial elections tomorrow. Final campaign rallies have taken place and the Electoral Commission says it's all systems go. This will be the sixth vote since the end of the Civil War in 1992 and two months after the country's two largest parties signed a peace deal that put a formal end to decades of violence. More from our reporter in Maputo, Motsebi Monareng. You know, people are very excited that tomorrow they'll be choosing or uh, voting for the government of their choice. Remember that uh, it has been a long 45 days where uh, all political parties that they have registered to contest these elections uh, were campaigning in all the districts and regions of the country. So what is left now is for the people to decide mm. who are who they want to, to, to lead the country of uh, Mozambique. But however, we spoke to several communities mm-hmm. here. Some of them, they are saying that they are interested to see change in their areas where they reside, unlike uh, electing government who is going to look for themselves, not to bring services to the people on the ground. Now, apart from just speaking to the uh, people, Mzibi, I'm sure you've had a chance um, to interact with the powers that be, if you like. Um, have you had the chance to speak to observer groups, for example, and what has been um, they take around um, the satisfaction levels for preparations? 
you know, it has been very difficult for us to be able to talk to the observers. Mm-hmm. But however, in the next 15 or 20 minutes, we'll be talking to the European Union who uh, confirmed that we can come and have the, an interview with them. They've been so difficult sure. because, look, mm-hmm. they had series of meetings with the electoral commission of uh, Mozambique wherein they were raising their concerns. Remember that uh, in the beginning of last week, there was an incident where an observer, local observer who was counted down, down in the Shai Shai uh, town, uh, wherein it is alleged that this particular person was coming from a workshop where they were preparing this election. So mm-hmm. what is going to happen now, we'll be having an interview with this European uh, Union. If possible, we'll also have to talk to Sadek to hear their views uh, regarding that uh, we just left with few hours into mm-hmm. the elections to get their views and their views about this election. Mm. Political parties, I know that at this time it's always sensitive uh, for them to say too much, but have you had a chance to speak to them, political parties? It's also been difficult for us to locate them. We have been calling them to arrange some interviews with them, but unfortunately we could not. The only civic organization that we managed to get is the civic organization in Mozambique who also... Uh, raised their concerns that, you know, there's no transparency in terms of these elections. They would want uh, the, com- the election the electoral commission to make sure that there's transparency because they've mentioned that um, in the areas of the northern part of uh, Mozambique, uh, some local uh, independent observers, they were not given an opportunity to be registered as observers. So they would want to see uh, the electoral commission making sure that these people are also part of uh, these elections, uh, observing these elections yeah. because they believe uh, there's no transparency in these elections. Mm. Now, uh, for those who are listening, uh, what times are the polling stations opening tomorrow? And um, has there been any indication as to when we can expect um, the results to be announced? According to the chairperson of the Electoral Commission, Sheikh Abdul Karimos, we have indicated that at uh, 6 o'clock all voting stations will be open across the country and around 7 o'clock uh, those voting stations will be closed. But if people will be still uh, queuing, uh, they will be given some tickets uh, which will indicate that they were on the queue and they will be allowed mm. to vote even after the closing time of these elections. But remember, mm. there are almost 3 million uh, Mozambicans that uh, have vote, uh, registered to, to cast their vote in Mozambique. And we also have those that are outside Mozambique in South Africa and other African countries, including the rest of the world, who will be also uh, allowed to go and cast their vote. So uh, they are saying that... Uh, the preliminary uh, results mm-hmm. will be started tricking in, I think, after 72 hours, meaning two days after the, 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 the election. So that's when we can start to see which is the political party that is still maybe doing well in terms of uh, the results. And that was SABC reporter Maputo Motsebi Monareng on the line from Maputo talking to Zikonamiso. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. What we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy which can ensure full employment to our people. The government concurs with the views of the Black Economic Empowerment Council report that it is now necessary to make our policies on Black Economic Empowerment more explicit. Last May, I asked constituencies at NetLab to discuss youth employment incentives. I'm pleased that discussions have been concluded and that agreement has been reached on key principles. 
We are on an ambitious drive to industrialize, to attract investment, and to create more jobs for the youth of our country. They don't have jobs. Tried looking for a job for it's a year and a half now. The challenges were experience and the, the level of education which I have. Channel Africa. The decision to award the Nobel Peace Prize to Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed has been met with a mixture of jubilation and disbelief in the Horn of Africa. The Norwegian Nobel Committee awarded the 100th Nobel Peace Prize to Ahmed after his efforts to achieve peace and international cooperation and for his decisive initiative to end the long-running military stalemate with neighboring Eritrea. Channel Africa's Coletta Wanjohi met with a former exiled Ethiopian who returned home after Abiy Ahmed introduced some reforms. Obang Metho, an activist from the Gambela region of Ethiopia, was in exile for 30 years. Although he managed to come into the country several times, he couldn't stay long for fear of being arrested for speaking out against marginalization of his Anyuak community. When Abiy Ahmed assumed power in 2018, Obang was among the many whom the government encouraged to return home. Uh, so being abroad, working abroad for 12 years, we were not allowed to come to the countries. And then the Ethiopian government, the previous government, before him, the administration, you know, really, they made it that almost illegal for someone like you and me to talk. They have the most strict law, and journalists were accused of being a terrorist, so almost impossible. So it was him, when he came in, that he allowed other people to come in. Yes, I think that's the, that's the reason, that's one of the reasons, I think, from what I heard also that, you know. It is partly because of Abi's actions on people like Obang that the Norwegian Nobel Peace Committee considered him the best person to take the Nobel Peace Prize this year. His office says the Prime Minister received the news as he was having a bilateral meeting with Prime Minister Abdullah Hamdok of Sudan, a country he assisted to assume civilian rule this year. Bilene Seyum, the spokesperson of the Ethiopian Prime Minister, explains. What it means at this moment, I think we all celebrate as Ethiopians, as friends of Ethiopians and even globally. Um, this is a milestone for all of us. It's a, st- it's a testament that um, if we have a resolve to work hard together for a common purpose and in alignment, um, a lot of the challenges that we have faced before, a lot of the challenges that we're facing currently is something that we can actually uh, move um, over, that we can actually create a bridge uh, to overcome this. So this is also um, a good day to call upon all Ethiopians to really mobilize and capitalize on this gain because this win is not only the Prime Minister's win, but this is a win for all of Ethiopia. It's a win. Ethiopians who support Abiy Ahmed consider him a symbol of peace after what they term as 27 years of domination by the few. In October 2018, Abiy constituted a cabinet that is half female to promote gender parity. Under him, people have been offered amnesty and political prisoners released. But he is also faced by increased ethnicity politics. Obang says the Nobel Peace Prize is a wake-up call for Ethiopia to assist the leader achieve the reforms he has begun. I think to most of the people who don't know, Ethiopia is actually different in many ways. The government that we have in the countries, you know, is, you know everything in the country is based on ethnicity. And a world that where in, you know, ethnicity is the last thing to think about, Ethiopia, ethnicity is the first thing people think about. So the constitution of the country doesn't say we the people of Ethiopia. It says nation, nationality, and people group. 
the regional state of Ethiopia and the state of calling it, you know, you know, West Ethiopia, you know, North Ethiopia or South Ethiopia is based on ethnicity. You know, a name after the ethnic group Uromu, after the ethnic group Armara, after the ethnic group uh, Tigrayan. So the political party that run the countries is based on ethnicities. So pretty much that changing a country that has been planted on ethnicity. The Prime Minister is also credited for renewing ties with Eritrea that had been stalled for over 20 years. He has assisted Eritrea and Djibouti to end their conflict, as well as offered to assist Kenya and Somalia resolve their maritime conflict. Abi is tagging his leadership under a motto he calls Medemer, which loosely translates to a call for unity. The Nobel Committee has said beyond just recognizing him, the prize is meant to encourage him to lead his country towards better democracy principles. And as he prepares for elections that will give him an official mandate, the whole world will now be watching if he will match the expectations of the Peace Prize. I'm Kuletwanjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Nigerian President Muhammadu Buhari presented a record 33.8 billion US dollar budget for 2020 to lawmakers as he aims to spur growth in Africa's largest economy. The plan for Africa's top oil exporter assumes crude production of 2.8 million barrels a day and an oil price of $57 per barrel. Although an analyst said the budget implementation may deviate dramatically from the figures unveiled, uh, Colin Zatohengbe has more from Abuja. No sooner had the budget been presented than the document was set for members of the National Assembly to debate. The issues raised by the legislators kept Nigerians wondering if recession may not step into the stage again, going by the lean sources of revenue generation and the country's level of indebtedness. For Ainaya Abaribe, Senate Minority Leader, the 10.7 trillion naira budget is not sustainable. Debt servicing as a component is higher than capital expenditure. 2 trillion for capital expenditure, 2.4 trillion for debt servicing. The projected growth was 1.9%, less than the population growth of 2.6%. So if we look at it globally, we're still struggling. Two assumptions that are critical for this budget. The first one is the assumption on oil prices. And there seems to be a little problem in the Middle East with uh, Iran, which will lead to a spike in oil price. But that seems to have petered out, which means that our projection for the cost of oil may also be off the mark. Second one is our projection for the production levels daily. I plead with my colleagues, look at the facts. You can't run away from facts. This is not a sustainable budget. Taking his cue from per economy review variables, an economist, Odulum Ewengwara, says South Africa stands a better chance than Nigeria could ever think of in the present circumstances. The Nigeria economy from 2014, when it was 563.5 billion, has now gone down to 373 billion, now losing 171 billion within four years. It's a cost for a lot. South African debt to GDP is 56.7. Our own is below 18%. But the cost of servicing our debt is far higher than that of South Africa because South Africa borrows more externally and cheaper. Too. It borrows for investment. But in our own case, we borrow 
expensively and we borrow for consumption. It's not enough to increase VAT because the revenue from VAT is actually diverted. Most of the collectors of VAT money do not actually remit up to 40% of that money. The issue which troubled everyone runs across board to the with that labor in its characteristic view of situations that can affect its constituency says the cost of running government is too high. Here is Peter Essele of the Trade Union Congress. Our consumption level is rather very high. Spending over four, over four trillion on recurrent, I think that is way too high. And servicing our debt is over two point, over two trillion. And I think our recurrent should be going down so that we can have enough funds to invest in other areas that would have that direct effect on the ordinary masses. Because if we don't do that, we will we'll get into a lot of problems and we are consuming so much. We have a whole lot of people in government that at the end of the day, you find out that the only, the only business in the country is the business of government. So everybody wants to be a politician. Everybody wants to run for an office because everybody believes that is the easiest way to make a lot of money. If budgets were to be judged on the basis of the amount year mark for development, nations like Nigeria would have little to worry about. But according to Alex Oti, a politician, the most important thing is how well revenue can be generated to meet budgetary projections. Oti compares Pretoria and Abuja to drive home his point. The problem is not the quantum of the budget. The problem is in our ability to generate enough revenue to fund the budget. We need to look at the cost of governance. A situation where 70% uh, of uh, your budget goes into recurrent expenditure and you're only able to generate 50% of your revenue target, then there's nothing left for capital expenditure. When you look at the population and begin to concentrate on GDP per capita, you find that while South Africa may be somewhere around $7,000 um, on GP, GDP per capita basis, uh, Nigeria is uh, somewhere about $2,000. So we are not in the same league at all. A station time saves nine, and that's what Bayer, Rotemi, and economists wants the government to do before it jumps into implementing the next fiscal policy because there are significant headwinds to watch out for. On a month-on-month -month basis, we need to be holding government accountable to say the 2019 budget that is already an act of parliament, to what extent have we delivered in the first quarter? And what you will find out, Chamberlain, is that uh, there is a significant disparity between the revenue projections and the actuals. You know, this current year we are going into, there are significant headwinds ahead of us. We must be asking ourselves to what extent is government coming up with policies to help us cushion the impact of these headwinds. Minimum wage that we are struggling to fund. Electricity tariffs that have still need to go up. Ultimately, is this big elephant in the room called the fuel subsidy that we do not have the capacity to continue to deal with. If you add all of this to certain moves by government to increase VAT, uh, communication taxes and all, there are significant issues ahead. To keep the economic ship of Nigerian state out of troubled waters, Odilim Ewegbara says Nigeria should tilt its borrowing cap to foreign sources because it costs more to service local debt. Again, he draws analogy between union buildings and Asorok. I'm not pessimistic for the sake of being pessimistic. I'm pessimistic because everything we are doing that we're supposed to do right, we're doing them wrong. Until something is done to the economy, because we can't continue business as usual. 
and yeah. they expect something better to happen. An economy that is growing like ours must be externally debt exposed because borrowing domestically is expensive. That's why the service to debt is so high. Because if we borrow externally, it shows that there's confidence in our economy. But we are borrowing domestically because it's a consumption uh, borrowing. So that's why we, we should do that. There's a gloomy picture, no doubt, but then this is one phase that Nigeria probably needs to experience before it can say Eureka. And as part of the race towards making the mark, the government has reconstituted its economy advisory council with the hope of reversing the eel wind. But what's in the crystal ball is dependent on walking the talk. From Lagos, Nigeria, I am Collins Nusa Atohim before Channel Africa News. Welcome to Change Your Game here on Channel Africa, the African Perspective. We're coming to you from Johannesburg in South Africa. My name is Asanda Peta. What uh, GDF Forum is about and what an opportunity it provides specifically for the audience of Change Your Game. At Change Your Game, we believe entrepreneurs are the key drivers of tomorrow's African innovations and essential to creating a thriving African economy. More support, just like invest more in young creatives and entrepreneurship, but actually do it. Don't just talk about it, actually do it, you know, because there are a lot of creative minds, there are a lot of intelligent human beings in our country, so I think they should invest more in that and take it seriously, because it's a real thing. Catch us every Friday at 900 hours Central African time with Channel Africa, the African Perspective. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kultranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka. In Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa. And now it's time for us to cross on over to the news desk. Here's Jwalani Tulo with your latest news headlines. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Thank you, Samora. Making headlines, the Electoral Commission of Mozambique has urged all the electorate to go and cast their vote on Tuesday. Amnesty International says journalists in Nigeria are operating under a climate of fear after 19 reporters were detained by security forces this year. And finally, Ethiopia's 19th century national palace, from where emperors and a communist leader ruled, has been opened to the public. For Channel Africa, I'm Cholani Tulo. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. 
After successfully pioneering its anti-fake news project in Nigeria, South Africa, Kenya, Cameroon and Senegal, Facebook says it has expanded its third-party fact-checking program to 10 additional African countries. The program will now be available in Ethiopia, Zambia, Somalia and Burkina Faso and another six additional countries. For more on this, Channel Africa spoke to Facebook head of uh, public policy in Africa, Kojo Bok. And he says the expansion of third-party fact-checking to more countries shows firsthand Facebook's commitment and dedication to fighting fake news in the African continent. I think the rationale is clear, really. I think Facebook remains committed to Africa, remains committed to to giving people in Africa the power to build community and to bring Africans and Africa closer together. And I think we're mindful that, that false news, sometimes called fake news, but false news remains a challenge, not only in Africa, but globally. And for that reason, we need to be part of the response to false news. And the third party fact checking, adding 10 more countries is essentially meeting part of the need to tackling this problem. So you guys will be aware that we started with five countries last year, Nigeria, Senegal, South Africa, Kenya, Cameroon. And the the addition of these, these 10 more countries is evidence of our commitment to to helping to tackle this problem, but also meets a need that we hear about as we travel and live in this continent. So we're very pleased to add these 10 countries and to to go from zero to 15 in the space of a year. Now, social media networks have no doubt changed how Africans consume the news as they are often the primary sources of digital content or the internet for many Africans. Take us through the work of the third-party fact-checkers. How does the fact-checking process work? In a, in a number of ways, really, we have. So, first of all, it's important to, to say that these third party fact checkers are really independent fact checkers. They have or are certified by the International Fact Checking Network, and their work really is done in a number of ways. First of all, they proactively look at stories and, and stay abreast of the news, which means that they will be able to, to really rate the accuracy of stories that they come across. Uh, on the platform, which is an important part of the work they do. At the same time, we are increasingly using machine learning. So machine learning that that takes the lessons learned from these third-party fact-checkers and enables us to pull down this content a bit more. But but the work of those third-party fact-checkers, these organizations like AFP or or PESACheck, Davoir, France 24 Observers is super important here. It's not just fact-checking and then giving a a rating. In many ways, they uh, go a bit further by creating uh, what we call additional stories or related stories that they will provide alongside the uh, related articles that they will provide alongside the the content that is deemed to be false or which is is questionable. Giving people a wider range of sources uh, to review, which is super important. At the same time, once those third-party fact-checkers have have reviewed content and rated it as false, we we demote that content. So when we demote, it's much lower on a, on a person's news feed. And what we found, interestingly, is that that demotion exercise leads that content to be viewed sometimes 80% less than it might have been before.
Now, do you have any information, Kojo, in terms of the motive behind spreading this misinformation on social media networks? I mean, the motives are varied. And I know, as you would have seen over the, the course of the last few years, that there are sometimes political motives. There are often commercial motives as well. But at the same time, we're mindful that in some cases, people spreading misinformation unwittingly for the most part in part due to their their misunderstanding of what that content is and the impact it might have and that's why actually engaging with people helping them to to think more critically about it providing as i mentioned before related articles alongside that these third party fact checkers are, uh, are pulling up and putting alongside these articles that are being forced is proving helpful i should add though where people are unwittingly sharing content that is that is misinformation one of the one of the steps we've taken that's proved really effective is is notifying page admins so in some case page admins might go to share a story we will send a notification to that page admin to say you know this story is is false or is potentially false are you sure you want to share it and that in itself has proved to be really effective as well as a tool uh plans are foot to enroll more african countries uh, to be part of this program yeah we've been very clear from the start that this is an ongoing process so when we started with five countries i think there's lots of people who would say well for only five countries we were always intent on adding more countries and there will be more countries added to this third party fact checking and we're, we're working hard to do that and i'm sure you'll be one of the first to hear when we add more and that was kojo Boake, facebook head of public policy in africa talking to kumbelo Munjalele. The Maasai are perhaps the most well-known tribe in Kenya and Tanzania with their bright-coloured garments. Traditional Maasai lifestyle centres around cattle, which is the main source of food for the tribe, with a large part of the tribe's diet consisting mainly of meat, milk and blood from livestock. But as Andrew Ocheng uh, reports from Kajiado in southwest Kenya, there are unusually a few Maasai who are now vegetarian. Just a warning, some people may find elements of this report disturbing. It is early morning in Anthony Mututua's homestead. He is a Maasai, one of Kenya's pastoralist communities whose lives, diet, culture and economy revolve around their livestock. There are several women and children busy in the goat pen. This is the way most Maasai start their day milking the goats just in time for breakfast. It is a chore reserved for the women and the children. After breakfast, several villagers start gathering in this homestead for a celebration. It's a slaughtering day here, so Anthony and his friends fetch two sheep from the pen. They drag it a distance from the house. Under the shade of an old acacia tree, they first suffocate the sheep by putting their hands over its mouth and nose. Then the knives are sharpened. Anthony cuts the throat of the sheep. They collect blood in jugs and mugs. Once the skinning has been completed, I'm just watching as the men who have been slaughtering the sheep remove the kidney. That is the first organ that they remove from the animal. They're cutting it into small pieces and they're sharing it amongst themselves. All of them except Anthony. That's because he's vegetarian. A very unique and rare thing in a culture where meat is central to the Maasai way of life. Yeah, it's just a normal job. People don't mind about uh, anything good, so you just slaughter. You give to prepare for other people to come and eat. Anthony only drinks milk but doesn't take the blood. I started just eating, but my body reacted. That is, 
allergy and I don't want to be eating more. While the men slaughter the sheep, the women are preparing other dishes that will go with the meat. Anthony's wife, Kristen, is among them. She's preparing chapati, a flatbread that is common here and eaten with stews or vegetables. She says her husband eats vegetables like cabbage or kale with ugali, which is a maize meal. His allergies normally last two to three days with itchy skin as one of the symptoms. Sometimes he has to go to hospital to be treated, but they have never been life-threatening, she says. One of the women gathered here is Wanjiru Ngororo, who is in her 60s. She's half Maasai, half Kikuyu, but always identified herself as Maasai. She was born and raised in Maasai country. She's been a vegetarian all her life and has never liked the taste and smell of meat. I have never had the desire or urge to eat it. You saw my shop. It is right next to a butchery. The smell that normally comes from there, God only knows. It is just that I don't have anywhere else to go. Even when I visit my in-laws, I find that they have slaughtered. But I don't eat. I don't have the urge. I ask Wanjiru what her family thinks. They really don't care. It's just my daughter who sometimes asks me, Mom, why are you not eating meat? I tell her I just don't want. Then she says, if you're not eating it, neither will I. Many rituals in the Maasai culture are tied around this communal sharing of meat and those who are vegetarian clearly stand out. Uh, it's true that Maasai eat a lot of meat because traditionally it's, it's the food, the natural, the staple food for Maasai is meat and blood, milk and so on. So you're not a pure Maasai? Okay, I'm a pure Maasai, but maybe just one the other way around uh, if you're not to take meat. Not all people know that I don't eat it. Because when I come, I just just when the other people are eating and I, I contribute, if they want meat, I give it up the goat for them to slaughter. And this is simple, that you, you are part of it because you are giving it up. So it's a well-kept secret? Yes, a well-kept secret. <laughs> You're a very cheeky man. <laughs> At a livestock market a few kilometers away, Hundreds of Maasai men with red and blue wraps around their waist and shoulders are standing beside their goats and sheep. You're not likely to find a vegetarian in this crowd. There is little sign that vegetarianism is a growing trend, but there is acceptance of the few who choose to follow this way of life. And that report was by the BBC's Andrew Ochieng in Kenya. Tens of millions of children in Africa are currently invisible to their governments. This is because most countries in the region still do not have well-functioning civil registration and vital statistics systems which capture significant events such as births, deaths and marriages. It is against this backdrop that African ministers responsible for civil registrations are this week gathering in Lusaka, Zambia to discuss legal identity management. Jane Rabutata is attending the five-day conference and filed the following report. The fifth conference of ministers responsible for civil registration has kick-started at the Mulungushi International Conference Center. The meeting creates a strategic platform for policymakers and experts from civil registration, legal identity, health, vital statistics and information technology to discuss key steps needed to be undertaken to strengthen civil registration, identity and vital statistics systems. 
This is in line with the Sustainable Development Goal target on providing legal identity for all, including birth registration. Most countries in Africa do not have well-functioning civil registration and vital statistics systems. As a result, less than half of all children in sub-Saharan Africa are registered. According to the United Nations Children's Fund, UNICEF, if current trends persist, 115 million children will be unregistered by 2030. In marking Civil Registration and Vital Statistics Day in Africa on the 10th of August, UNICEF Regional Director for Eastern and Southern Africa, Mohamed Malik Fall, said the fact that millions of the continent's children do not have a legal identity is discouraging and harmful. Fall explained that without birth registration, children are denied the fundamental rights that flow from the official notification of their births. Calling on governments to strengthen broader civil registration systems and improve birth registration across the continent, the child agency maintains that it is only with a legal identity that children can more easily access basic services such as health and education. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Jane Rabutata in Lusaka, Zambia. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. What we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy, which can ensure full employment to our people. The government concurs with the views of the Black Economic Empowerment Council report that it is now necessary to make our policies on Black Economic Empowerment more explicit. Last May, I asked constituencies at Netlec to discuss youth employment incentives. I'm pleased that discussions have been concluded and that agreement has been reached on key principles. We are on an ambitious drive to industrialize, to attract investment, and to create more jobs for the youth of our country. They don't have jobs. Tried looking for a job for it's a year and a half now. The challenges were experience and the, the level of education which I have. Channel Africa. And now it's time for your economics news. Here is Tracy Boomgard. Thank you, Samora. South African President Cyril Ramaphosa has wrapped up his visit in London, where he addressed the Financial Times Investment Conference. Ramaphosa says South Africa is working to restore its institutions and secure private investment in order to grow the economy. He said that Africa, despite its challenges, is young and dynamic, with vast potential and great promise. The conference looked at Africa as an alternative market. In a report released this week, the World Bank said growth in Africa remained subdued. Chief Economist for Africa at the World Bank, Alfred Zufak, says the issue, however, doesn't relate only to Africa. First, the deepening global trade tensions are affecting the whole world, not just Africa. Second, the slow pace of domestic reforms, especially debt management, and efficiency of public sector institutions. Third, 
climate shocks such as the cyclone that affected Mozambique, Zimbabwe, and Malawi earlier this year, and alternating drought and floods that are reducing farm production across Africa. All of this translate into a decline in exports and investment in African countries. In a way, governments, firms, and individuals are not in a position to continue creating the jobs that are so desperately needed. Acting South African Airways Board Chairperson Tandek Mkhoduso has allegedly been implicated in a billion-dollar tender round. Mkhoduso was accused of interfering in a tender process to ensure that a company she had a relationship with, 21st Century, received the contract despite them not scoring the best marks in the process. 21st Century Chief Executive Chris Blair refused to answer specific questions related to the contract but denied wrongdoing. Unions affiliated with the airline have called on the Minister of Public Enterprises to remove those involved in interference with the running of SAA. The fallout from the 15-month trade spat between the United States and China is still taking its toll. China's exports fell at a faster pace in September, while imports contracted for a fifth straight month. This points to further weakness in the economy, underlying the need for more stimulus as the trade war drags on. There are, however, tentative signs of a thawing intense trade relations between the world's top economies. Following talks last week, U.S. President Donald Trump outlined the first phase of a deal to end the trade war. Trump also suspended a threatened tariff hike set for October 15th. Existing tariffs remain in place and officials on both sides said much more work is needed before an accord could be agreed on. This year's Nobel Memorial Prize in Economics has been awarded to three U.S.-based professors. The Swedish Academy says that in just two decades, the new experimental-based approach by the trio has transformed development economics, which has made it a flourishing field of research. The Secretary-General of the Swedish Academy, Jörn K. Hansson, made the announcement. The Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences has today decided to award the Sveriges Riksbank Prize in Economic Sciences in memory of Alfred Nobel for 2019, jointly to Abhijit Banerjee, Esther Duflo and Michael Kramer for their experimental approach to alleviating global poverty. The U.S. dollars trading at 359.19 Nigerian Naira, 10.85 Botswana Pula, at 102.79 Kenyan Shilling, and at 13.12 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, one U.S. dollar will cost you 4.10 Brazilian Hale, 64.17 Russian Ruble, 70.57 Indian Rupee, 7.08 Chinese Wang, and at 14.73 South African Rand. The U.S. dollar is also trading at 79 pence to the British pound and at 90 cents to the euro. Gold is trading at $1,474 and platinum at $886 per ounce. The price of Brent crude oil is $59.98 a barrel. For Channel Africa News, I'm Tracy Bumgard. Now it's time for your sport. Here's Neto Chimani.
Thank you, Samara. A very good afternoon, sport fans. The government of Kenya is today expected to announce plans to honor the country's athletes for the great honor they have brought to the country in the last one month. Sports Cabinet Secretary Amina Mohammed is meeting the local organizing committee of the World Under-20 Athletics Championships scheduled for Kenya in 2020. Channel Africa's Francis Mutegi reports. LOC members had petitioned the minister following complaints that the secretariat and the committee members had not been paid a penny for their allowances for since being inaugurated eight months ago. The minister is expected to use the occasion to make government's pronouncements on plans being put in place to give the Doha 2019 Team Kenya Heroes and Heroines. Eliud Kipchoge, the first human to clear 42 kilometers marathon in under two hours, and Bridget Kasgay, who on Sunday broke the women's world marathon record in Chicago Marathon. Also worth being fitted is Lawrence Chirono, who heroically overpowered two challenges in the final 100 meters to claim men's Chicago Marathon title. Meanwhile, Kenyans are not having enough of Eliud Kipchoge's success on Saturday. President Uhuru Kenyatta and his deputy William Ruto led tributes to the legend for his exploits in the streets of Vienna, Austria. You have made the world proud and you have shown each and every one of us what we can do if we put our minds, our bodies, our souls and our spirit to it. One of the greatest moments for me was when I saw you cross the line 20 seconds short of two hours and the first thing that you put in your hands was the Kenyan flag. God bless you, God bless Kenya and let us all learn and live by the example of what one individual can do to change the lives of billions. In football news, Zambia registered their second win at the ongoing Kosafa Men's Under-17 Championships after threshing South Africa 7-0 in Group A encounter earlier today. The match took place at Mbira Stadium in Plantaya, Malawi. The result means Zambia have now booked their place into the knockout stages of the tournament with a game in hand following two group wins. Zambia head coach Oswald Mukala was pleased with the result. It was a great game in that uh, we got maximum points, but also we stuck to, to the game plan. We knew South Africa, the ability to move the ball, and they are technically very good. We denied them space in which to play. Yes, on a few occasions they were able to, to move the ball, but I think we had scored early, denied them space, and we utilize our chances at the end of the day, a great result for us. Zambia has scored 13 goals in two matches so far in the tournament. They thrashed Eswatini 6-0 in their first match. They will face Malawi in their final Group A match on Wednesday. The result also means South Africa have no chance of qualifying for the knockout stages after suffering their second defeat. They were defeated by the hosts Malawi 3-0 in their opening match at the weekend. Head coach Vela Kumalo was disappointed with the result. I'm actually not happy with the, the score margin. Could have done better. Any coach will understand that it's being considered, considered, we considered seven goals. And for any coach, you're, you're not going to be happy about it. Even though you know that uh, you're playing a team that has been assembled for, assembled for a very long time, I think.
when we actually had one session to prepare and then we had to come to, to the tournament. That is not an excuse though, but I can say congratulations also to, to Zambians. They stuck to their plans. We had the plans, we saw what they were capable of, a running team, and we had our plan. Our boys, they could, they could just carry it out maybe for, the, for 15, I think 15, 10 minutes of the game. And what really killed us was considering a goal in the early stage of the game. For Channel Africa Sport, I'm Neto NETO Chamani. This is Africa Digest. And that wraps up Africa Digest for this hour. Be sure to join us again from 1900 hours Central African time right here on www.channelafrica.co.za or on the DSTV audio bouquet channel 802. But for now, from myself, Samora Mangesi, producer Leander Maume, technical producer Revelino Ebrahim, and the rest of the Africa Digest team, thank you so much for listening.